Stories. Fighting for freedom every day. Broadcasting from the heartland of America. The next generation in conservative talk radio. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. What's up? Welcome into it. It is the middle of the week, a Wednesday, greatest day of the entire week, my friends. And holy cow, strap in, buckle up. We have so much to talk about today. There's breaking news all over the place. I don't know what to do with myself or how to contain myself. So welcome into it. Great to have you. This is Andy Hoosier. This is the Voice of Reason broadcasting out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas, on our flagship radio station, the Greats. Wichita's Big Talker, KQAM, hosting us here as we do every single day on multiple radio stations all over the place, not just here as well. Broadcasting on radio stations, TV, live streaming, podcasting, however you watch or listen to the show. Welcome aboard your millennial general reporting for duty like we do every single day. Scott Beyer will be joining us bottom of this hour. He is the founder of Market Urbanist. He is a traveler, a blogger, and he's traveled for the past few months all over Central and South America. And he's come back with a story to tell. What is that story? What does Latin America actually look like? And are they prospering? And how do we solve some of those issues going on down there? Not that we're supposed to solve issues all over the world, but what can they do to better improve their lives, especially with, I don't know, the mass migrant flood that we're seeing coming up into the country from some of those regions. So we'll talk with Scott about that coming up in just a little bit. We will get to the immigration bill that was voted on in the Senate just a little bit, a little bit ago, and you will be... Maybe a little surprised at how that vote actually turned out. But before we do that, there's some other breaking news that happened just recently. What's trending today? As of just a couple hours ago, I believe, according to DNYUZ. Now, this is, I guess, a reputable source for the most part. But according to DNYUZ.com, the chairwoman for the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, is a formally announced to president, former President Donald Trump that she is planning to step down as the Republican chairwoman after the South Carolina primary that's set for February 24th. Whoa. Say what? I know that's kind of some breaking news if that is the case. So we'll see if that uh, starts bleeding into more of the mainstream. But according to this site that she's planning on stepping down and President Trump is advocating for and promoting for the chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party, Michael Watley, as the replacement for the RNC. If this is the case, then this is some pretty earth-shattering news. The fact that we're going into a major election year and that they're advocating for the replacement of the RNC chair. Again, this is from DNYUZ, whether this is accurate information or not. But if this is, this could potentially shake up the Republican Party pretty dramatically here, which I would say is not necessarily even a bad thing. We probably need a bit of a replacement of the RNC chair after some of the disasters that we've seen in the last few elections, really since she's become the chairwoman. Who that replacement would be is going to be interesting to see if this North Carolina chair is the one that steps up and actually makes something like this happen. But the Republican Party right now, we've talked about it for a while, is in need of some replacement of leadership. And what that looks like moving forward, time will tell. But right now, we need someone that's not afraid to stand on conservative principles and doesn't cower to the establishment, middle-of-the-road, wishy-washy types that seem to be running Washington, D.C., especially in an election year right now when we have state Republican parties that are in complete shambles. Like, I don't know, the one that I'm at here in the state of Kansas with our state Republican Party 
uh, our convention that we just had this last couple weeks ago in the state the state of Kansas, yeah, not looking good for the state Republican Party. I'm not going to get into those details on this program, but not looking good, man. Not looking good. So all hands on deck. If you're a Republican, a registered Republican going into election year, I'm going to be depending on you because our statewide and nationwide Republican parties, RNC, are, are not going to be that reliable. We're just going to throw that out there. So it's going to be up to you to spread the message. It's going to be up to you to try and get out the vote. It's going to be up to you to make sure the right people get into office in your local area, fill in the blank, wherever that may be, and for you to be that catalyst to make sure that we get Republicans and the proper Republicans elected in this seat. That's why we love partnering with someone like Americans for Prosperity, who's going to be that boots on the ground, because the Republican Party itself is not going to be very reliable in this situation and in such a catastrophic year that it is 2024. We'll see what happens. Ronald McDaniel possibly on the way out after making that announcement to Donald Trump and potentially the chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party, Michael Watley, uh, being advocated for or endorsed by Donald Trump if there is said replacement in that movement. We'll see where that goes later on. But let's get into our other big news of the day. What's trending today? I have a few others. I have a couple really big stories, so we'll try and cover as much of this as we can today. The big news, obviously, on the floor in Congress today is the fact that the Senate ended up voting on the immigration bill that was put on by James Lankford, Mitch McConnell, and Chuck Schumer. And it got shot down by a 59, or I'm sorry, 49 to 50 vote. They needed 60 for it to pass. So they were shy just to like 11, but 49 to 50 with them voting no on this bill. So that one is done. And it sounds like it's caused a lot of turmoil going on in Washington, D.C. right now, as that vote just happened just a couple hours ago. And Republicans not too happy with what's happening, according to NBC News. Just came from a testy or outside of a testy Senate Republican lunch that dragged on for nearly two hours. I'm told there was fighting. There was uh, a frank discussion in the words of Senator Josh Hawley, who reserved his words uh, for what he thinks about the leadership of the conference. He said it was abysmally embarrassing over the last few months. What Schumer is doing on the floor right now, you saw it on your screen is a procedural vote, a first step to see if they can get on the National Security Supplemental without those border provisions in there. The fate of this bill, though, is unknown in the House. Speaker Johnson this morning uh, had said just as much. He said they'll wait to see what the Senate does. I just had some news, uh, according to two sources that I spoke to. Leader McConnell actually met with Speaker Johnson behind closed doors this morning. Johnson could not give him any assurances as to the fate of that bill. And remember what's tied into their key aid for you. Ukraine and Israel, and also the Indo-Pacific region as well. Whoa, there we go. Audio from NBC News there, the reporter in Washington, D.C. So some inner bickerings among the Republican Party, especially after this vote, shooting down the immigration bill that James Lankford worked so hard on. Now, there's a lot of rumor and a lot of speculation leading up to the release of the details of this bill, as the details were essentially not even released until like Sunday or Monday of this week. Then the vote happens today, which is Wednesday, a 350-some-odd page bill that they had two days to read. Uh, some of them saying they vote no on it because they wanted to understand the bill a little bit further. Some of them saying that they wanted to vote against it because of politics, according to James Langford, who created the bill. And I've told you before, he's been on this program many times before. I am shocked that he would come up with such a type of bill, according to at least the speculation that we had heard prior to the details of the bill actually leading up. And he expressed his frustration shortly before the bill was actually voted on, as he had about 30 minutes to speak on the Senate floor, advocating for it and talking about how detrimental this bill actually was 
or at least the bill was needed based on the detrimency and the emergency that we saw going on at the southern border. We understood from the beginning we're not going to solve everything. We're not. We knew from the beginning it's not going to be perfect. But we also knew the status quo is untenable. We have to do something to be able to make the status quo better. So that's what we work towards. So that, by the way, from uh, C-SPAN with his live video stream of his speech on the Senate floor. So what's really in the bill? I've had the chance to read some of it. Obviously, haven't had a chance to read a whole lot of it. 350 pages in the last two days. I'm a kind of a busy guy, so I haven't had a chance to read it, but, or at least all of it. But for you, I'm assuming that not many of you have actually been able to read the bill in its entirety as well. James Langford went on the Senate floor and advocated for this bill, saying it's not the perfect uh, fix-all be-all, but at the end of the day, it is moving forward in some type of progress. Now, I reiterate before we play some of this that Washington, D.C. does not need a new bill because we already have immigration law on the books. If you want to solve it, just actually enforce the laws that are on the books. Joe Biden has the ability to shut down the border. Joe Biden has the ability to deport individuals. Joe Biden has the ability to stop the flow of illegal migrants coming in the southern border. Joe Biden has the ability to build a wall. Joe Biden has the ability to put resources into border security. He could do all that right now if he chose to do so. He hasn't done that, though, which is the question on why, as they advocate for this bill, which we all know is because the only reason they say they can't do anything unless this bill passes is because Democrats only care about the Ukrainian funding that's in this bill. has nothing to do with immigration, has nothing to do with our border security. They want something to look like they've done something in order to get what they want, which is border uh, funding for Ukraine. So... I was surprised that James Langford would take this project on, or at least do it in the way that we that it came out to be with the final products. And he still stands by it. And he said that, rightfully so, that he's worked long and hard since October on this bill. And we've had him on this program many times talking about how important this issue is. He's been to the southern border many, many times. If there's an individual that knows the ins and outs of probably what's going on at the southern border, he would be one of those at the top of that list. So when he came out with the bill, I was relatively excited about it. Like, hey, all right, this guy might actually be able to solve something. And the way he talks about it sounds good. So the question I ask you now is based on what we've heard with the rumor mill, based on what he said on the Senate floor, do you trust it? And should we have passed this bill as Republicans? Well, here's what the bill includes. Let me just walk through some of the high points of it. It includes more border wall construction under the 18-foot, 30-foot Bollard-style definition in locations actually that were set by President Trump in those locations to actually build a wall. It has 50,000 detention beds, so it ends our catch and release issue. So especially single adults as they're coming across the vast majority end up being held while they're being screened there rather than just released in the country as they are now. We doubled the deportation flights. We added money for DNA testing. We added money for additional state, local, and tribal law enforcement that we're partnering with along the border to be able to help with enforcement process there. We have a tremendous increase in the number of ICE agents, the number of Border Patrol agents, more asylum officers, more immigration judges. We added detection equipment at our ports of entry to interdict fentanyl. One of the biggest threats to our nation right now. All right, we'll get to some more of this here in just a minute. I think the big question that many have 
with this bill was the rumor speculation that was floating around saying that there would be 5,000 illegal immigrants that were able to enter the country before we actually shut down the border. It also gave the president, according to Joe Biden, that it would give him the ability to shut down the border at any time when the crisis was there, which begs the question, when do you, what do you consider a crisis? Because we have a crisis right now, so it should already be shut down, which he says he's not able to do until we actually pass this bill. So the 5,000, regarding the 5,000, what does this bill actually say? According to James Lankford, who, again, I would think would be a relatively conservative guy on a border immigration package. Maybe. So whatever you can put in there to be able to actually make sure this occurs, please do. So we did. We included a border emergency authority that said, if we ever exceed 5,000 people, which, by the way, is every day but seven in the last four months, if we ever exceed 5,000 people and we're in chaos level, the border shuts down completely. It's not optional, it's mandatory. And when I say shut down, it's pretty simple. What happens in the first 5,000? Let me make it clear. For the first 5,000 people that are coming across, they're detained, they're screened, and then deported. If you get above 5,000, we're in such a chaotic moment, we don't have time, so we just detain and deport them. There's no screening at all because we've run out of time. We don't have the manpower to do it. That's the shift that occurs. It's not that the first 5,000 are released. That's ridiculous. The first 5,000 we detain, we screen, and then we deport. There it is. Not just allowing 5,000 illegal immigrants to come in, but the 5,000 that come in that actually get detained, get processed, and then deported as opposed to just allowing them to waltz right in. And after 5,000, they lock it down and they don't even process them. They just uh, detain them and then deport them. I would say, just throwing this out there, that if we hit that level, you don't even detain them. We don't have the room to detain them. You just don't let them in in the first place. And then we figure it out from there. So it's kind of some weird wording. And I think that's why some Republicans are so skeptical of this, this bill. It's the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back into the program. 24 minutes past the hour. Radio, TV, live streaming, podcasting. However you check us out, we always love you to death. Thank you so much for doing so. Find us on the social media at HoosierReason.com. The website, HoosierReason.com. The social media at HoosierReason as well. So we have a bill that failed 49 to 50. There were five Democrats that voted no for the bill and four Republicans that voted yes. Only four. Now, this is a bill that was supported by, or at least written in part by, a Republican, James Lankford, that supported the bill because he put a lot of effort into it. I understand that. But every Republican except for four ended up voting against this bill. Those Republicans included, uh, that voted for the bill, included, uh, which I guess you're not in very good company here, which is what makes me a little more concerned, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. James Langford from Oklahoma, Susan Collins from Maine, and Mitt Romney from Utah. Outside of James Langford, literally every major rhino that despises the Republican Party are the only other three that voted for the bill. So that should be a telltale sign that maybe this wasn't the best bill 
at all. Now, some say that it's just politics, that they just want Donald Trump to fix the issue when they get into office. Let it just, just be a disaster down there. We're using it as a campaign talking point during the election season. And if that's the case, then we have a serious problem because are we in it to win elections or are we in it to actually solve an issue? And James Lankford mentioned that in his speech, and I could see where that argument could be. And I know that there are some that are probably playing that game. But at the end of the day, if it's a Republican's name on the bill that actually got voted on, then it would be up to Democrats to veto it and to stop the bill. And that way it would be their fault. We're actually ones to solve the solution, not to pay the political games. And I understand. I know it, I, I can hear him right now. People are screaming, Andy, it's a one party system. We get it. Both system, both parties are corrupt and they're both paying, paying, uh, playing politics. I get it. I understand that. And that's a lot of probably what's happening as well. But when you only get three other Republicans to vote for the bill, and they're the most rhino left-wing moderate three out of the entire Republican caucus, that should be a sign that maybe this isn't the best of bills, as many of them were concerned about it. Because if this is the case where we allow 5,000 to be processed and then deported, and then we lock down after that every single day, and they lock it down for like a week on end or a couple weeks on end or whatever it is, then who's actually going to be allowed to enforce that? Because the Biden administration, the executive order, the executive branch are the ones that are for, supposed to enforce these types of laws. And who's to say that they're going to? He's still waiting for a crisis to happen at the border for him to actually mandate some type of lockdown and shutdown from the southern border. So I have very little faith that this would actually be executed, even if it were passed right now. Do we need to do something? Yes. Do we need to work across the aisle and be able to compromise and work together? I believe so, to at least get something. I would rather the border be 30% more secure than what it is right now, if we could just do a little bit. Would this bill have helped that? I don't know. According to most Republicans, Speaker Mike Johnson said it was dead on arrival if it got to the Senate or if it got to the House. Most conservatives in the House of Representatives said that it would be dead on arrival and they would vote no on this bill. And in the Senate, the only three, other than James Lankford himself, who put his blood, sweat, and tears into this bill, the only other three Republicans that actually voted for it are the worst Republicans in the entire caucus. Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins. They're the only ones. And oh, by the way, five Democrats voted against the bill as well. They needed 60. They got 49 for this bill. Not going anywhere. So now what's going to happen? We have Chuck Schumer, who says he's already working on a vote for later tonight as an alternative bill that is essentially the exact same thing, but without the immigration part of it. What a concept, right? Oh, the Democrats, we know your tricks. That's exactly what they wanted in the first place. That's exactly what they wanted, to shut down this bill, to scrape the immigration part that they didn't want to deal with in the first place, and then be able to put up another bill. Andy, what's in this other bill? Well, the only other thing that they focused on, on why they were conversing about immigration in the first place, which is funding for Ukraine and funding for Israel. Those are the only two things. So now this alternative bill that may be voted on by the end of the night tonight in the Senate is going to be a bill just for Ukrainian funding, just for Israeli funding, no border issue which will be dead on arrival in the House of Representatives, too, because Republicans won't do it unless immigration's attached to it to solve the immigration problem here. They didn't want to solve it in this bill. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Reason meets radio. This is the voice of reason 
with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it on the home stretch here. Oh, how the time flies right on by. So much to talk about, man. So much to get to, especially after the big votes that happened earlier today. Today, the administration will identify 1,500 people, will give them parole authority at one of our ports of entry and a work permit the first day they come. They don't have to qualify for asylum. They don't even have to apply for asylum. It is literally an open invitation from anyone anywhere in the world to get a work permit if you'll just tell us in advance you're coming. It's not lawful, it's just happening. This bill would end that. That's James Langford, the writer of this immigration bill that ended up failing in the Senate today, 49 to 50 on that one. The Republicans say that they're in turmoil now, trying to figure out what to do with immigration. Some say they just want to wait until they hopefully think that Trump will be back in office to solve the issue himself. Others say that we need to try something different. Right now, the Democrats pushing an alternative bill that may be voted on by the end of the night tonight. That would be an alternative without immigration in it, stripped away, where they just vote on funding for Ukraine and for Israel which was the primary uh, agenda for the Democrats anyways. Let's be honest. They didn't even want immigration. They t- literally had people out there saying, don't worry, the border's still open with this bill. We're just trying to get this through for Ukrainian funding. So <laughs> that was the priority. They didn't really focus a whole lot on the up- actual immigration policy part of this at all. So James Lankford, unfortunately, uh, didn't do what needed to be done to get the rally of conservatives and Republicans in that vote. All right, I want to shift gears a little bit. We'll get back to that here in just a... A while. What's trending today? But I want to shift gears as we talk about immigration. I want to talk about where some of the origins are coming from, from Central America, South America, and uh, different communities all over. As uh, what's it like, and are we able to see progression in society in some of these areas, or is it just uh, is it too far gone? And what's going on? As one individual has been able to make his way all around as a tourist and uh, being able to travel all over the place. He's the founder of Market Urbanist and his latest travel log, uh, known as Latin American Urban Experience. Excited to have on the program here, Scott Byer with us. Scott, how are you, my friend? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. What an experience! How long were you out traveling? It was one and a half years. Um, I it was a one and a half year tour of the global south. So it was six months in Latin America, six months in Africa, six months in Asia. Wow, what an experience! Uh, talking about Latin America specifically, which obviously I'm sure is like one of the most beautiful places. I want to go down there and visit myself. But what did you encounter? What was some of the uh, some of the things that you were able to to take away from this trip? Well, overall, I I think the it, it reinforced some of the things that I thought going in, which is that the living standard in the third world is generally much, much lower than the United States. And so it's, you know, when we talk about poverty in the United States and people living in public housing and things like that, it does not compare to the truly decrepit living standard that exists in Latin America and other parts of the third world. So it, it's understandable that people would want to be escaping that and going to the U.S., there were, however, particularly from an urban policy standpoint, which is what I specialize in, there were some interesting things that Latin America was doing that I think the U.S. could learn, and that was what the uh, pamphlet that I wrote for the for PRI was about. I love that. Talk about some of these. I, I know that uh, you mentioned third world countries, and I know it's difficult for them, but are we seeing progression? Are we seeing people in different countries starting to rise up out of this third world status, do you think? So that is true as well. Um, the, the GDP growth rate and the population growth rate and a lot of the economic indicators that we look at as signs of economic health 
are actually rising faster in, in the third world than they are in the U.S. and much of the Western world. So it, it, in a lot of ways, it's like they're more pro-growth. They see the value of having big companies come in and provide jobs, allowing real estate developers to actually build things um, that are going to produce for society, whereas there's a lot of nimbyism and regulation in the United States because we take our wealth for granted and we don't want to see those things a lot of times. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'd say that they, they are progressing a lot, um, but they're also starting from less. So that's a, an important point. Sure. Absolutely. What's, what's been one of the big indicators or one of the big drivers for them to start rising out of it? Is it some type of uh, economic status? Is it some type of industry? Is it some type of manufacturing? What's, what's getting them to that level? Well, there, there's a couple like bombshell takeaways that I found when I was traveling through. I think the main one that really um, interests me is just the whole idea of having deeply affordable housing. So in the United States, particularly in the cities, particularly in places like California, we have a really bad homeless problem. And a lot of the reason is that we can't legally, and by we I mean real estate developers, cannot legally build affordable housing. Like there's all kinds of things baked into the regulatory code that make our housing have to fit a certain standard and, and, you know, have parking and have certain design materials and all these things. And so it prices out the lower tier of society in the U S in Latin America. On the other hand, there's not this regulatory regime. And in fact, and this is, it's pretty wild actually, which is that some some neighborhoods are effectively illegal altogether, and they're just basically like anarchic, you know, anarchy-style urban typologies where people just invade land and build squatter settlements on public land that don't have any of the regulatory codes that we would um, observe in the U.S. Wow. And so that probably sounds bad, but I think what it, what it accomplishes for these societies and the reason it doesn't really get stopped is that it provides this deeply affordable housing for the Latin American working class that oftentimes they rent for, they'll rent a unit for like a couple dollars a month. Um, and so that's, that's an example of like, they don't actually have the levels of homelessness that we have in a lot of our U.S. cities because they're allowing a certain type of vernacular to get built that appeals to and that can be afforded by the working class. Very interesting. Now, how much, and I know this varies based on the different types of governments that they have based on the country, but when it comes to government control, government regulation, you, you mentioned some of the anarchy type styles in certain areas, but then we have, you know, the major conversation about dictators in the area. We have the cartels that like to run things based on kind of a mob rule. How much did that play into some of these and are those helping or are those stifling some of the economic growth in those regions? Well, the paradox that I found about Latin America, and yes, obviously it does vary by country, but the paradox I found, especially when you compare it with the United States, is that the U.S. at a federal level actually does have pretty good economic freedom and like stable governance, and, and the, the federal governments in a lot of Latin America are unstable and do not score very high on economic freedom rankings. However, it really gets inverted, like the whole regulatory regime gets inverted when you go away from the federal level and you go more at the local level. So at the local level in the United States, 
try going into a city and just opening a food cart. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, you can't do it in most cities. You can't do it on the sidewalk. You can't do it really anywhere because there's all kinds of rules in place preventing that kind of thing. But at the street level in a lot of Latin American cities, it is that kind of anarchy that I was talking about before where people can just have pop-up commerce and housing in many, many places that would not be allowed in the U.S. Yeah. So it's one of those things that's it's kind of hard to give a, de- a definitive answer. It depends on what kind of government you're talking about and what level of government. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, I always say that I always ask the question on the program here is name one thing that we can do here that isn't regulated, taxed or licensed, because you're right. We can't just open up a side a corner street uh, business and expect to make money without the government coming, especially if it's food. Then you got the FDA mm-hmm. coming out here and saying, yeah, we're going to shut you down and take all that away because you're not allowed to do that because the government didn't deem it to be healthy for you. So I, I love the fact that they still have those opportunities. Uh, last question before we have to take a break here, and I appreciate it. We're talking with Scott Beyer uh, with Latin American Urban Experience, his latest travel vlog. You can find he's the founder of Market Urbanist as well. But talk about uh, the infrastructure in these areas. I know that obviously being a third world country, we're not seeing you know major highway inter, you know highways like we're seeing here in the United States. We're seeing still a lot of dirt roads and that sort of thing. Uh, is that being worked on, and is there starting to increase in economic value? Are those things being focused on in these nations to make things better? Yeah, so the, the infrastructure is porous compared to what we would be used to in the United States. And, in fact, a lot of these, like, shanty type of neighborhoods that I was talking about, they don't even have clean running water. Um, I think where a, a significant out, uh, outlet to this problem is taking place is a lot of Latin American cities are starting to, or, or Latin American countries are starting to experiment with the idea of private cities. So developers will assemble land often on the outskirts of an existing city. They'll get some sort of special jurisdiction status that involves like tax breaks or regulatory breaks. And then they'll begin providing a lot of this, this infrastructure themselves that the public governments have failed to provide. So we're not only talking about clean water, but things like reliable electricity, public safety, mass transit. You know, it's, it's basically like, um, it's it's private governance and it's government as as a service, so to speak. So um, that not only in Latin America but also through a lot of the third world, you'll see this <clears throat> this contrast where like new big mega projects that are private will be providing everything that you might call first world standard, yeah. and then you walk outside of them and it's like you're back in the slums basically, and <laughs> everything is decrepit and and not being provided. Yeah. What a concept, making private sector actually take care of some of this stuff because they have the ability to do so more efficiently and without the taxpayer dime on that. That's a fascinating concept that they're working on down there. It is Scott Beyer, founder of Market Urbanist. You can find him online, find the great travel vlog as well with all the travels that you do. What a fascinating life you live, my friend. I'm so glad that you're able to make these travels and experience some of this and bring some of these ideas back to home, and maybe we can implement some of these here in the United States as well. Scott, we're out of time. I'd love to get you back on again, though, real soon, my friend. Sounds good. Thank you. Hey, appreciate it very much. Interesting stuff. Let's break some of that down when we come back here. Does it tie into immigration? Absolutely it ties into immigration. Does it tie into some American policy? Absolutely it does. We'll do some of that when we come back right around the corner. It's the voice of reason for the middle of the week. Stay right here. This is the voice of reason with Andy Hoosier.
fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. Last couple of minutes here on the program. Thanks again to Scott Beyer coming on the show, founder of Market Urbanist. Interesting conversation with his year and a half travels down in Latin America and seeing what works, what doesn't work. It's fascinating to see that capitalism, the free markets, are the ones that continue to drive the economy. It's not the government. It's not the government. Never. It's never the government. Government doesn't solve anything, but... I love the fact that they have a little bit of freedom. If you want to start a, I don't know, a taco shop or a hot dog stand at the corner of the street, you can do it without the government coming and shutting you down without a license. I don't Gasp. Gasp. Allowing people to actually make money. What a concept. It's wild. Listen up, government. I think here in the United States, we could learn a few lessons from that, that we can actually do things without you controlling it. I know that is a while. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To the government, that is the worst thing in the world. Mine's a nightmare, if anyone's wondering. I mean, that's <laughs> that's really what the government's all about there. So we can learn some stuff. And while we're looking at finding ways to let's entice people to not want to flood our borders illegally, we should figure out how to actually solve the issue down there. Now, that being said, obviously there's a lot of places elsewhere that they're coming from with China and with Russia and the Middle East and everywhere else. So we have a serious problem overall, but when the ones are coming from cartel-ridden dictatorships in Central and South America, maybe we could work to solve some of those. There's always an uh, going-on adage saying that uh, in order to change a society, all you got to do is you don't have to overthrow the government. You don't have to create a new constitution or a new document. All you have, because they don't understand how to live it. We tried to do that in Iran and Iraq, and you could see how well that actually worked. Didn't work out too well. After all those years of George W. Bush trying to put a constitution into Iraq and having people try and teach those people there how to actually live under the rule of law by a constitution, it failed miserably. Remember, it was a big success when we saw the Purple Fingers. Remember those? The Purple Fingers when they actually didn't want voter fraud, so they would dye their finger purple after they voted to prove that they already voted. Yeah, I know. That was a great success. And then after that, it just kind of toppled from there, and that constitutional idea never really came to fruition thereafter. But it was a great concept. You know how you actually start changing a society? Create capitalism. Interject a few businesses. Allow people to start making some money. Keep the government from making it top-heavy with them keeping all the money and allow other individuals to actually make money themselves. And guess what? They have more money to spend. They can start spurring the economy. They can start making economic growth. What a concept. What a concept. We need to start learning some of that. We need to implement that there, I think, in the Central American, Southern American areas to where they can start fighting back against the dictators. They can start pushing back against some of these cartels. The cartels don't have to be the only ones making the money and dictating what the laws are going to be in those areas. We can make that difference. We just have to allow them to do that themselves and start making those changes. And they can rise up from that third third world status and start making themselves better. And then guess what? They wouldn't want to come here because everything's living hunky-dory in their areas. we got a couple minutes left here. I want to uh, touch on there is a big push they are desperate to try and make nikki haley still relevant in this election when we kind of have to admit that the election's just pretty much over i mean let's just be honest it's pretty much over uh, right now for the republican side as we know there was a primary yesterday not sure if you actually paid attention to it in the state of nevada now we talked about this issue on the syndicated program over the weekend about the 
primary versus caucus status because the primary was yesterday. The caucus for the Republicans is on Thursday. The primary means zilch for the Republican uh, Party because they're not delegating their delegates based on the primary that happened yesterday. They're doing it from the caucus that's going to be tomorrow that's held specifically by the Republican Party. That being said, Donald Trump was not on the ballot yesterday in the primary as Nikki Haley was. In the caucus tomorrow, Donald Trump will be on the ballot and Nikki Haley will not be on the ballot. She didn't spend the money to do both. Therefore, she will not be on the ballot that actually matters in the state of Nevada. That being said, if you haven't paid attention to the election results from the primary yesterday, and those of you in Nevada, I know you're extremely confused. We have a lot of listeners in the Nevada area from our podcast that that she still lost the race even when Donald Trump wasn't even on the ballot. Oh, yeah. She still lost the race. The none of the candidates, the other category, won by a 63% vote. Nikki Haley getting 30%, Mike Pence getting four. Nikki Haley losing by half the votes, 44,000 to 21,000, by the none vote because they didn't want to vote for her, even with Donald Trump not on the ballot, which means I can only assume that the caucus on Thursday will be roughly about the same, if not even a greater margin for Donald Trump. She, of course, saying that it's all rigged by the Republican Party to make sure Donald Trump gets that nomination, but Donald Trump wasn't even on the ballot yesterday and beat Nikki Haley. A sign that she probably needs to hang up the hat in this election. Interesting stuff. We'll do some more again tomorrow for a Thursday. Until then, be your own voice of reason. This is the voice of reason. I'm Andy Hoosier. We'll see you on the radio.